This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Eavesdropping on Jesus' Life. The poet is Joanne Sherbine, and she joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Joanne. Hello. You, you say you don't like or don't feel you're a poet, and yet you've written this poetry about Jesus, and it rhymes, and it, it really is complete. I, I, I call you a poet. Well, thank you. <laughs> so tell us why you did this. This was, I'm sure, quite an undertaking. Well, it was, and yet it was not. Um, I did not think of it as a, a heavy undertaking at the time. It, I'll be honest, it started out of sheer boredom. I had a rather lengthy hospitalization, and as I started to recover, I needed something to do. It was late November. Everybody was talking about Christmas. I was ready for sort of a fresh approach to the Christmas story. And I sat down one day, well, it popped up in the bed one day with my Bible on one knee and the yellow pad that my husband had brought to me in the hospital and just took a look at the, the good old Christmas story from the Gospels and uh, from the King James Version, which has a natural rhythm and flow to it, and tried to make it a little more readable. Uh, and that was, that was sort of how it started, and it just sort of grew from there. You say that your book is not a retelling, it's not a commentary. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's why we edit. Okay. You say that your book is a retelling, and it's not a commentary or an interpretation or any kind of theological manifesto of any kind, but it's a retelling of the story in a different mode. Right. I wanted it, you know, when I realized <laughs> where it was going... I, my goal became for it to be very accessible. Um, I don't pretend to be a theologian. I was not studying the Greek or anything like that. I was just taking uh, what the scriptures that I grew up on, and as an English major and English teacher, the language that I had learned to appreciate in terms of the, the whole King James kind of uh, period. And just wanted to, to share that with a larger public that sometimes is afraid to appreciate uh, appreciate the language for one thing and appreciate poetry for something else. You just wanted to give a fresh view of the Savior. Right, exactly. And that he's a real person. And that he's a very real person, yeah. And of course, uh, sometimes, you know, uh, when we talk about historical figures, we forget that they walked and lived among real people, and, and uh, those people had real issues, and here's the Savior going about helping people, and now we read about it in this fresh rhythm and with contemporary language. That's what I hope people see, yes. Well, let's, let's uh, have you read some of them and comment on them and, and the... Uh, the insights you gained from doing it, uh, how you were feeling at the time, uh, anything you'd like to add to that. Uh, let's start with one that's called Into the Water, the Baptism of Jesus. 
Okay. And this, the, the account of his baptism is actually recorded in three Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And the book identifies the scripture references at the top of each, uh, at the top of each poem. So you could have your Bible open and you're following along with one eye and reading the poem with the other. But here is the account of Jesus' baptism, my version. John the Baptist, cousin of Christ, preached of repentance from sin. Those who believed and understood, he baptized for cleansing within. Jesus came up from Nazareth to visit his cousin one day. He, too, wanted baptized in Jordan. But John's first response was, nay. John knew that Jesus was perfect and needed not repent from sin. Jesus, however, had reason, and thus he convinced his kin. John led him into the water and dunked him as he had been told. They came up out of the water. God's message began to unfold. A dove came and perched on his shoulder, the Spirit of God from on high. The heavens resounded with God's voice. All could hear it who were nearby. This is my son, the voice said, as Jesus bowed his head in prayer. Thou art my son beloved, in thee I'm well pleased. No fanfare. Can we fathom the humble love that brought Jesus to Jordan that day? An act of obedience to his father, designed to show us the way. Very nice. A lot of images there. You, that's what's great about poetry. Not only is there feeling, but there's very precise images. Well, the uh, and there again, I don't feel like I put the images in there. I think if we go back to the, you know, to the language, to the King James, it's all right there. A little bit harder to understand, maybe, but it's all there. When you were doing this. You say you were uh, recovering uh, in the hospital. What kind of feelings? I mean, when you're there in, in like that kind of a setting, you, you think a lot. Uh, what, what were you feeling when you like did this poem? Can you remember what you were feeling? I honestly, um, and that, that's a very good question, I honestly can. I had started with, uh, and, and this, that first part of the, the book is a chronological account of the life of Jesus on earth. And as I said, it was late in November, everybody was talking about Christmas. So the, the first things in the book are actually what we think of as the Christmas story. Um, and this particular poem sort of evolved as I, you know, transitioned from where do I go from here? And I just took a look at the, the big events in Jesus' life, the personal events that, that um, made him so special while he was here. Uh, as far as my feeling, and, and this one I don't think was actually written in the hospital, but um, it was one of those things that just sort of developed out of that initial desire to reintroduce Jesus to the reading public. And, of course, in your book you talk about uh, uh, Jerusalem, Gol- uh, Golgotha, the, the tomb, the crucifixion, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension, but what we're going to uh, read now is Nathaniel O'Figs. Okay. Uh, and Nathaniel opens the second part of the book uh, after I had, had... And this one, this section was actually written much more deliberately, I guess, than the first piece, or the first part. Um, and the first part was, seems to be, or seemed to be, at, at some level, more structured, because there were 
certain things have happened in Jesus' life. But the more I got investigating, I also discovered that he talked to many individuals. Now, we think of him ministering to groups of people and working miracles, but he actually had conversations with many individuals in that three years he was here. So I started to investigate those, and the first one is he was putting together his team of followers. The first one that he sort of eyeballed was Nathaniel. Um, so recorded from the Gospel of John, again, here's my take on Nathaniel. Jesus gathers his disciples after his baptism by John. He found Philip in Galilee, who right away followed along. Philip soon spotted Nathaniel and said, We have found the Lord, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph, according to the prophet's word. Nathaniel was a bit skeptical. He questioned Nazareth's good. And good come out of Nazareth? He was not sure that it could. Philip responded simply, Come and see. They started to walk. Jesus saw Nathaniel coming, and immediately he took stop. Behold, an Israelite indeed, a faithful man with no guile. Nathaniel did not understand that Jesus has us all on trial. How do you know me, he asked. A fair question at any rate. I saw you under the fig tree before Philip called you of late. Nathaniel right away knew him, knew Jesus' identity. Rabbi, you are the Son of God. King of Israel you will be. Jesus said, perhaps with a chuckle, Are you telling me you believe simply because I saw you sitting in shade under a tree? You will see far greater things if you choose to follow me. For one, you'll see heaven open. Angels coming and going, you'll see. We have no further record of Nathaniel's response that day, whether he opted to follow or proceed on his own chosen way. Very good. To someone who really, uh, like you say, that's the only little part of his life that we know. Right. Uh, Why choose him? Because Jesus, at that moment in time, found him to be very important. And I think that it's important for us to realize that uh, many times those that we deem insignificant or even the encounters that we feel we have that aren't really all that special, uh, when Jesus is ready to talk to us, that makes it very special. And, you know, regardless of the level of publicity or the flashing, you know, flashbulbs or headlines, um, just the fact that Jesus recognizes us wherever we are and tells us that we're important to him. Talk to us about the Samaritan woman at the well. If I have a favorite, and I'm not sure that I really do, but the, Samaritan, the, the piece on the Samaritan woman is one of my very special ones. She represents, or the, the story, the story of Jesus and the woman represents for me the crux of Jesus' ministry on earth. We see him in a very human form. He walks up to this woman in the middle of the day. The very fact that she was at the well in the middle of the day, if I understand the culture, uh, 
was sort of unusual, was sort of a, a tribute to the nasty reputation she had. Uh, but Jesus walked up to her and asked her for a drink of water, a very, very human thing to do. And that simple request developed into a lengthy conversation where he ultimately offered her living water. And I'm not sure she ever really caught on to what he was trying to say, but at least she was willing to talk to him. And again, this woman who uh, came from a background that that no doubt left her rejected among her peers um, gave him opportunity to show to cross so many barriers. I think that we even have today. Um, he engaged her in conversation, and he, you know, he was putting his own uh, human reputation at stake to do that just because of the kind of person she was. Uh, he very patiently answered her questions. And even, and, and of course, we don't hear tones of voice, but I think I hear some challenge in her voice. Uh, and yet he very patiently answers her questions and, and respects her level of intellect in doing so. Um, and when she brought in her friends and acquaintances, which... Um, tended to be, you know, the men of the community because that's the kind of woman she was, he showed nothing but acceptance for them. Never in that encounter was there any judgment, and there easily could have been. Um, so that, you know, setting the standard for us as human beings to cross those barriers of gender, uh, obviously race, because it was Jews and Samaritans, and that was a, a big racial, racial divide, uh, cultural divide in terms of what was acceptable, what had been acceptable in her life and in contrast to his standards. Um, so that all that, I think, sets us a tremendous example. But he also reveals himself in this story as divinely God in being offered, able to offer her the living water in revealing that he knew everything about her uh, about her background, about her past, about the kind of person that she was, um, so that we see him both as son of man and son of God right here and uh, totally accepting of us in our human weakness. How many poems are there in your book? Oh, um, <laughs> <laughs> there, are, there are 12 in the last section, the uh, and there was nothing magic about that. I just found 12 one-on-one uh, -on -one conversations that he had. And in the first part, of the, the life of uh, Christ is broken into uh, seven major events. And in the second part with the people, you have conversations with uh, Simon Peter, James and John, the lawyer, uh, Saul of Tarsus, right. Mary Magdalene. And Martha, mm -hmm. so uh, it's filled with and the rich young ruler. It's filled with all kinds of the woman taking an adultery. So it's filled with all kinds of different uh, experiences that the people surrounding Jesus had. Right. Well, very that, good. Go ahead. Uh, well, you know, in, in, in going over that list, you know, it, it reminds me one more time that. Uh, Jesus was not partial 
to uh, any particular group as much as some of the people around him felt he should be, uh, he reached out to whoever needed him. And uh, without regard to whether they were male or female, uh, whether they were rich or poor, uh, whether they were educated or not, um, if they had a need, he was there. Joanne, how do we get your book? Uh, the book is available on Amazon. The book is also available through Author House. Uh, and those would be the two ways that I would know, www.authorhouse.com. We'll get you to it there, and Amazon.com. And uh, You can probably order it from probably any of the online bookstores, I'm sure. Right. Well, we want to thank you, Joanne, for all your insights and your creativity and and your, I guess this was a poetic adventure. It certainly was. It was a, it was a, a long shot for me because I never, never anticipated how far it would go. Well, congratulations, and uh, thank you for being on Author Talk. Thank you very much. That was Joanne Sherbine. She is the poet of her book, Eavesdropping on Jesus' Life. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. They flourish on a secluded farm 3,500 feet above sea level in Hinotega, Nicaragua. These coffee beans grow in the shade of hardwood trees and banana plants, thriving in the rich organic soil. Shade-grown coffee grown at higher elevation has a better quality. There are two benefits, a slower growing cycle for the plants that allows time for the sugars in the bean to mature, and the natural composting from the nitrogen-producing canopy. And now you can order this international gourmet coffee online at NicaraguasBestCoffee.com. Order 12-ounce and 16-ounce bags or save with a discounted price by ordering in large quantities. Three different coffee beans available, Arabica, Marigold Gaipe, and Green Oro. Prepare to enjoy the richness and the soothing flavor of some of the best-tasting coffee in the world. Order online at NicaraguasBestCoffee.com and enjoy Central American flavor, aroma, and richness of Nicaragua's Best Coffee. It's the chance for you to hear firsthand from authors on why they write their books in their own words. It's called iUniverse Radio, hosted by Steve Jorgensen every Saturday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 3 Central on TogiNet Radio. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio, every Saturday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 3 Central on TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge. Sending a heartfelt message is one of the best ways to touch someone, to touch the heart. But it's easy to forget birthdays, anniversaries, and other special occasions. Imagine how many lives you would touch if it was easy to send those heartfelt messages. Send Out Cards provides a way for you to send a personalized greeting card to a friend, loved one, or business associate in less than 60 seconds from the convenience of your computer. You can even add a gift or gift card. Send Out Cards is about helping people reach out to those around them. It's amazing what a simple message can do. Send Out Cards helps you act on your promptings to reach out and change lives. 
Show host Michelle Bateman has learned through personal experience what it means to be an eagle by always working to be your best self. Please join our conversation on Send Out Cards Radio with Michelle Bateman to learn what it means to be an eagle on toginet.com. Radio with a cutting edge. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, One Dance with a Stranger. And the author is Mary Forbes. And Mary joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Mary. Hi, how are you this morning, Steve? Well, good to have you with us. Now, this story, I guess it comes out of your love for country music, right? It does. I have always loved country music, and it mainly comes out of uh, Alan Jackson's song. And it seemed as though every song he sang seemed to inspire a scene for my book. All right. And, like, what was one of the songs that inspired the book? The title, One Dance with a Stranger, is inspired from his song, Dancing all around it, and at the beginning of the song, he says, uh, I don't normally dance with strangers. I don't know another song uh, offhand, a hole in the wall, big enough to drive a truck through, inspired <laughs> a scene. <laughs> okay. And some George Strait songs as well? Uh, George Strait, uh, I watched uh, Pure Country, I love is this is where the cowboy rides? Right, away. I remember that movie. I've seen <laughs> that a few times. I, that he was good in that. Oh yeah, and so well, good looking. <laughs> that, was a, that was a good story. That was, it was a good storyline. Enjoyed yeah. it so much. I watch it quite often. So this appeals to romance readers of all ages. Of all ages, but more the young. I think the more young people. Probably mainly young women. and So it's that kind of story that uh, really triggers, you know, a country song. I mean, that's what country songs are about, real life. Yes, and it's uh, very much a real life. It's country. I grew up uh, in country setting. I still live in a ranch area, and uh, it's just uh, about a cowboy who happens to make it to Big, too fast. <laughs> and let's see, that's Wade? Wade is my hero, and he is uh, good-looking, and he is uh, he becomes very famous fast as a country music singer, and he thinks he's infallible. Does he have a big ego? He has a very big ego. <laughs> and he's making lots of money. And he's making lots of money, so he can pretty well buy whatever he wants, and you know. But he still maintains his, uh, you know, country roots. So this is a story about overcoming problems, right? Right. My hero, heroine Emily, is uh, she grew up on the street, and she poses for a men's magazine to get some money. And once she gets out of that life, she tries to hide it, tries to keep her secrets, and it becomes very difficult. 
keep her secret. And she wants to make something of herself. She wants to uh, kind of leave all that past history behind her. Yes, and she becomes engaged to a politician, and uh, of course she can't have any scandals in her past. And when she meets Wade, she it's too late because he has actually seen her picture in the magazine. So her husband doesn't know about her, her past? Yeah, her fiancé. Her fiancé, okay. Okay. And doesn't know that what she's done in the past. And, of course, it doesn't help his political career to have it exposed and uh, tries to hide it. But it becomes very hard because Wade is her fiancé's brother. Oh, <laughs> so it becomes very So that's hard. how they, I was going to ask you, well, how did they meet? Well, that's real <laughs> simple now, that's part of the family, huh? So, yeah. And so when he first sees her, does he know right away? Yes. Does he recognize her right away? Yes, he does, even though she's not quite like she was in the picture. She's, uh, he just recognizes her right away. So she's prim and proper. She is very prim and proper, and... Uh, very cold and standoffish, and well, how you know? Uh, how does she finally find out that Wade knows? Well, she sees it in his eyes. Oh, she sees kind of like like she can questions. See he recognizes. Oh, her. I, okay. So he, so then she has to try and. So she carries yeah. that fear around with her that somebody's going to recognize her. Yes. Very much, and she carries around the, you know, the dirt and filth of uh, being a homeless person. She doesn't have a good self-esteem. Not at all, no, and she's uh, very proud of her accomplishments because she has attended university. and. So as they say, she's come a long way, baby. Yes, she has. <laughs> a long way, baby, yep. <laughs> She's obviously afraid right from the start that her fiancé is going to find out because then he probably may not want anything more to do with her. Well, he will, yes, she believes that it will wreck her life. But Wade convinces her, although she doesn't really believe it, Wade keeps saying, like, what she did was not that bad or whatever. So does she trust Wade? She trusts. Wade, but she doesn't want to become involved with Wade because Wade is, of who he is, she doesn't want well, that, any part of Damon. Well, that would he, become a big scandal, too. Well, yeah, she doesn't want to, she doesn't want to become involved with him, so, you know, she's fighting, but of course she's attracted to him, so. Does Wade want to have a... Some kind of relationship? Yes, actually, Wade, uh, he, Wade drives a, a semi through his own house when he catches his wife having an affair. And he ends up spending time in prison down in Texas. And uh, he, he, uh, that's where he sees her picture, and he keeps the picture. He finds the picture very intriguing, <laughs> and he likes her. 
And I guess so he, he never expected to meet her. Uh, no, he didn't, and he had no intentions of trying to find her or anything like that. Especially in these circumstances with her, with his brother being well, a fiancé. I mean, he gets introduced to her by the brother? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, he's, um, he's quite shocked because while he was in prison, of course, he was... Uh, he felt he was almost obsessed with her, right? And then he, when he meets her, well, she's not 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 like her picture, but she looks like her picture. Right. Now you say Wade is a sensitive man. Yes, Wade is. Uh, Wade was a a character that was very hard to write and get him. To be believable and lovable. <laughs> so he has this ego, but he's still got that sensitive side. He's to a him. sensitive guy, and he's a very, very much a fun guy to be with and around. And he doesn't uh, he doesn't judge people or really care what other people are doing, so long as they you know, accept and let him do what he wants to do. <laughs> like, he's not a judgmental, and he, you know, sees into people very much what they feel inside. And Well, does you know. he let people, very many people, know this sensitive side of him? No, not really. He Mainly he jokes and, you know, treats most things very casual and so he does with Emily he finds it's very easy to talk to Emily too and sometimes he lets her see his sensitive side so I guess that's why she's hoping to be able to trust him well she does trust him in the beginning but then somehow or other her pictures do get out into the papers in Ottawa. And she believes he's done it. Ah, okay. Now, does Wade have a good relationship with his brother? No, Wade Uh and his brother, actually, it was his brother he caught with his wife, his now (laughs) ex-wife. His brother who he caught with his ex-wife and his brother was the cause of his uh, going to prison. So he's um, not too... They don't get along at all. Right. And his brother is very much a different person and very jealous of Wade and his success. Well, we've shared a lot with the listeners about these different characters and some of the circumstances. I don't think we want to talk too much more about some of the storyline here, but let's let's talk a little bit more about uh, his brother. Now, what's his brother's name? His brother's name's Tony. Now, is he a, a, a real dedicated politician, or is he kind of in it for what he can get out of it? He's in it for what he can get out of it, and he's very much a... Mistrustful, like he appears to be honest, but so he can talk a good game. Yeah, very much. Yeah, and uh, is he popular? He 
is popular and he in the politician field and he's very uh, aggressive in trying to get ahead. And it sounds like he doesn't have uh, many principles if he did what he uh, obviously had an affair with his brother's wife. No, it's... Uh, All about him. Yes, it, it's very, very strange for Emily to try and, like, they are brothers and she's never had a family and she can't understand the differences between the two. Yeah, we won't talk any uh, at all either about how, it, you know, the, uh, she became engaged to this guy who doesn't sound like she ought to be with him. No, she shouldn't be with him because he is not helping her self-esteem or helping her. He's making her feel she should be grateful to him rather than, you know, convincing her she's not necessarily an evil person, or, but it's for his own benefit that he would like to have her feel grateful. Wade also has not much use for society rules, just, you know, the game, I guess, in society. No, I think this is because of his power, you know, with his wealth and fame. He truly believes that, well, he can get away with a lot of stuff that I guess an ordinary person couldn't, and his money will buy his way out. Or So you want people to take away from your book uh, a belief in true love and a belief in people. So I guess there's... Uh, something kind of uh, comes to pass in the story to kind of drive that home. Yes, it's a feeling that like people do make mistakes and it's not always right to judge them and if you rectify your mistakes and, you know, become a good person, then... So we ought to give people a second chance. Yes, yes, very much. Give people a second chance, and you should respect their differences. And some people don't. And some people are cruel about it. Yes, very cruel. And and I just like people to. And it's a very entertaining story. And so I'd like people to come away with a a good feeling of instead of depression and stress. I'd like people to come away with a good feeling. So it's a good escape in this stress-filled world, you, you're saying. that it's, it's an enjoyable light read. Yes, it is. It's a very, you know, it's very good for escapism for a, a little while. <laughs> <laughs> and the characters are very, very entertaining and... And believable. And believable, and they're also um, very much... Uh, enjoyable to get into their lives. Well, Mary, tell us how to get your book. Well, you can get it through Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or Author House, or at my website, which is www.marymforbesauthor.com. Marymforbesauthor.com. MaryMForbesAuthor.com. Very good. Very good. 
Well, we appreciate you being on Author Talk. Well, I thank you very much for the opportunity. That was Mary Forbes. She is the author of her new book, One Dance with a Stranger. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Maybe if I write a book, it will be the thing that keeps me alive. Those are the troubled words of a new 16-year-old author with her first thought-provoking book, What Gives? Published by Togi Entertainment. The author kept a diary during her dark teenage times, which turned into a 360-page suicide note with a happy ending. Texas Monthly describes teen author Chelsea Marie and her new book, What Gives? in this provocative way. We've plunged from page to page, not because of the young diarist's despondency. Depression is not especially attractive or compelling, but because we are fascinated to see that while she is fending off demons on one hand, she is writing verse with the other. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. Readers of What Gives are giving rave reviews. All social scientists, teachers, and students should use this book as a learning tool. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. The American Rock and Roll Countdown with Alex Price. So where were you in the 1970s? Well, this Saturday morning we're going to flash back to the 70s as we count down the classic hits with the American Rock and Roll Countdown. You'll hear news and information and stories about the artist and what was going on during the specific week that we highlight. So be sure to join us at 9 o'clock Eastern Standard Time this Saturday on Toginet for the American Rock and Roll Countdown. The American Rock and Roll Countdown on Toginet. He's a diehard American. He's right, and he has the last name to prove it. He's Jason Wright, the host of The Right Side of the Aisle on TogiNet Radio. Jason is a father and self-made entrepreneur who turned a struggling East Texas real estate firm into a top-notch million-dollar company. Jason Wright loves America and is very concerned about where we are headed as a nation. He's dedicated to traditional American values. Jason Wright. Join us every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern for The Right Side of the Aisle on TogiNet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk. Brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, El Vocan, and the author is C.L. Levy. And Charlie joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Charlie. Hi, how are you, sir? Well, this book, uh, El Vocan, is really a, a action-packed, adventure, military, but it's also you're trying to send a message about foreign policy uh, in the Central and South Americas, right? Yes, that's correct. Um, the idea uh, for the book occurred to me when I was working uh, actually um, quite a number of years ago at the Defense Intelligence Agency, and sort of the focus there at the time was the insurgency in El Salvador. And, uh, you know, at the time... I guess what occurred to me was that the um, uh, some some aspects of uh, American foreign policy probably didn't um, take into account adequately cultural factors in the countries where we were uh, attempting to establish policy initiatives, and so I thought that a good way to express that sentiment would be through a a novel um, that was engaging and fun to read, 
but also sort of had this um, maybe a subtle theme that I think um, a discerning reader can can pick up on. Um, you know, if there's if uh, if, if really um, you, know, you sort of read the character development and, and other aspects of the story. Yeah, you say most. It seems most foreign policy policy just kind of focuses on conventional arms uh, policy. Uh, you talk about economic, military, political, security issues, and not the culture. Right. That's that's right. And I I think I've seen that um, you know even more so uh, lately in some respects. Um, without giving any specific examples, um, there are there are times when our State Department personnel and you know, even sort of the executive branch gets involved in in uh, attempts to set up policy, but they really ignore cultural facets of a country and try, in many respects, to shape policy based on our own objectives, that is, American objectives and American initiatives. And um, I think if you if if the culture of a nation, which in my opinion defines a nation much more than a national boundary, uh, that it is, it is the, the culture or cultures, you know, plural, that are present in a country. If those, um, those are the aspects that much better define what makes a nation a nation and, and the identity, if you will, of a nation. And so if you want to, no matter what your, your policy initiatives and you're focused on you know, the military, the economy, vote getting, whatever it may be that you focus on, you will, I think, inevitably have more success if you understand, uh, you know, at, at as at as deep a level as possible the the culture within the country, and um, try to design policy that is more acceptable from a cultural standpoint to the people in that country. And as you point out, foreign policy or war is not just simple or black and white. So it's very comprehensive. Yes, and and that's that's exactly the the point too. That um, you know, one of the examples I give uh, at the in the um, in the afterward uh, was in when I was working in El Salvador. The uh, you know USAID uh, came up with this idea called United to Reconstruct, and what they had been finding was when they distributed funds to the um, to the Salvadoran government, uh, and hoping that it would then you know sort of find its way down to the local municipalities and be distributed effectively. You know, that didn't happen. Um, you know, the funds would get sort of dispersed at all sorts of levels, and if some uh, official had a particular project that he or she thought was important, then things would be diverted and whatnot. So what they started doing was they started distributing funds in a public ceremony to a municipal mayor. And, of course, this was done publicly in front of a large group of, you know, the, the people who lived in that municipality and the exact amount. And, you know, it was done in a ceremony. But, but then... What that did was that sort of mandated uh, whoever received the funds to really spend the funds as, as they had been designated because everybody in the town and the municipality knew exactly how much he'd gotten and when he'd received it. And if the school and the clinic and all of these things that were going, supposed to be built were not built, then he was held directly accountable. And that worked extremely well. Um, that, that was a very effective uh, program, again, taking into account the culture and the importance of the, uh, the local uh, municipal officialdom and things like that. So, you know, that's, that is a, a, really, a really, I think, a really good example of where, you know, and I, I've used this phrase in my afterword, but I, I'll use it again, cultural accountability uh, in foreign policy endeavors is, is I think, very effective. Uh, and this, this actually worked quite well. And I think, you know, as you say, in, in, um, 
uh, in uh, war uh, wartime policies. Uh, also, that can be a very effective way to do things. And you know, and this old, the sort of tried and true cliche of winning the hearts and minds. Well, it's, uh, understanding the culture of a um, of a, uh, a country and a, and a, a, an ethnic group or whoever you're dealing with uh, is a very, very first, very, very big step. Uh, in moving in that direction, uh, that is, in winning the hearts and minds, if you will. And again, I don't want to overuse that old cliche, but that's a good step, a good first step in the direction to really understand what it motivates the people to sort of get up and go to work and do all the things they do on a day-to-day basis. So you take us to a fictional Central American country, and uh, what is the country called? Uh, the country in the book is called San Cristobal, um, and it is... Uh, it is a a country that is sort of with a, a widely varied geography and terrain, and um, the sort of the importance of the culture there. That the way I try to, um, I guess, try to uh, make the theme or the point of the novel is to have a an indigenous population that is sort of out of the mainstream of of. Uh, Political and military events going on, but that has been there really for you know literally thousands of years, and and in many respects, and they stay to themselves. And the geography sort of limits the, the ability to enter into the areas where they live because it's so the terrain is so extraordinarily difficult where these people have chosen to live or have lived for so many thousands of years, and people just kind of ignore them and leave them alone. And um, there is a sort of a mystical aspect that, you know, it's a, it's a literary, I guess you'd call it a, a literary tool, if you will, where uh, these people in some respects sort of have the idea that they're, they're really controlling events. And, it's, it's, of course, it's not really clear how um, or how or in many respects what is, in some respects with, with regard to these people, what is actually happening, what people are imagining and, and things like that. But at the same time, that group of people very much, in my opinion, or what I was trying to do is to have them serve as a, um, you know, as a, uh, uh, a representative team or representative um, uh, figure for the culture of a country and how if you, if you really don't address that, those cultural factors, you, you will have a great deal of difficulty. Um, I, I chose a mythical Central American country because... You know, my experience encounter, and actually, I, I, before I went to medical school, I was a uh, I was a Marine Corps intelligence officer, and I was a, a foreign area specialist for Latin America, and so my my area of expertise was counterinsurgency, um, and I spent quite a bit of time in El Salvador during during the the conflict there, um, and so I felt most comfortable using that as a venue, but I didn't want it to be a a situation that you know was was a real. Uh, Situation because I felt that for what I was trying to express, um, you know, this sort of this fictional country would be the best venue for for trying to um, represent all the different facets of foreign policy in, in a in a uh, a story. Tell us about the main character, Lieutenant Kane. Kane is a um, young man who is, um, you know, at times very, uh, uh, very sullen, perhaps, and very. Um, but also very strong. He's a, uh, a young uh, Marine Corps lieutenant who, uh, at a young age, lost his parents. And um, his parents really were very, very, um, you know, bright people who were well educated. Uh, and uh, he had spent, because of his father's um, you know, work as a uh, 
a professor of uh, of culture and anthropology. He had spent quite a number of, of uh, quite a bit of his you know young years in other countries and observing other cultures. And um, this very much has influenced his his sort of outlook on things. But at the same time, having lost his parents, he's he's a little bit bitter, and he's fairly, he's a fairly lonely guy. Um, and so he tends to sort of um, when he gets into a professional uh, relationship with an older guy, he kind of tends to set the guy up as a father figure very quickly and um, becomes very attached to, to people. Um, uh, and, uh, and this, in some respects, uh, maybe doesn't serve him well when he has to deal with, uh, you know, with death in combat and um, you know, trying to sort out where his, the line sort of ends between duty and um, and uh, you know loyalty and things like that. So it's um, he's an ambivalent guy who is at times very confused, very frightened, uh, and doesn't always make the right responsible choices. He's in a situation where he's very much um, has a lot of autonomy uh, and uh, is in this uh, small. Uh, spends quite a bit of time of the novel, most of the novel. He's in this small Central American country. There's this very violent conflict going on, and. Um, you know, it, it affects him deeply, and he internalizes things and uh, makes the conflict his own, which, to be, um, you know, completely honest, I, I, that, that is something that is not terribly uncommon uh, amongst, uh, you know, some of the young military guys. And, I mean, certainly was my experience. I spent two years in El Salvador during the war. I very much internalized things. And, and um, so some of that, his character, is uh, reflective, I think, of things about my own personality, to be completely honest with you. Um, but he is a uh, you know, steadfastly honest guy. He's very, he's extremely loyal, and he's a you know a superb military officer. And of course, uh, some of the scenes where he uses his his soldiering and military skills uh, demonstrate that he's just sort of a you know very top flight, very extremely well trained, extremely um, uh, motivated guy. But he does have these these inner conflicts, which uh, which tend to make things difficult for him at times. And you send him on a sniper mission, unauthorized, uh, deep into enemy territory for avenging the death of his CEO. So I guess that shows his loyalty to the CEO, but also, but also shows his extreme, I guess, uh, lack of control of his emotion. Right, and that's um, that's exactly right. And and you know those sort of things, um, uh, you know. This is a scenario where, you know, in in other conflicts, people have done this sort of thing and uh, even gone outside of, um, you know, of the the uh, prescribed mission and done more because of this internalization of conflict and because, you know, a friend or a commanding officer or somebody uh, has been injured or killed, and it, it becomes a vendetta and it becomes a vengeance. And, of course, you know, the um, the response of the... Uh, you know the military group commander and everybody else is is very negative, which of course it should be because you know you're you're given us as a military man you're given a set of parameters that you really should not abrogate those parameters. You you should stay within them, and he doesn't stay within them, and that that was something I I wanted to uh, use that as a device to really demonstrate the sort of person he is. You know he's a a person who really with these relationships he really gets very involved and very. Um, you know, very dedicated, very loyal, and the, he, if something happens that affects his mood or his outlook, he takes it as a personal affront. And I, I think we've we've all known people who do that, and probably everybody does that to some extent. I mean, I do probably to some extent. So it's um, 
this is just, uh, I think in some respects when you put somebody in these incredibly stressful situations and then on top of that they have the grief to deal with and loss and, uh, and all these other um, emotions going on and conflicting, uh, they may react in a way that is not necessarily uh, within the strict confines uh, of their, uh, their mission guidance. And, and I, I wanted to point that out. And one of the main things I really am trying to do in this book is to show that military people are, you know, very human and they, they can be the most brave, the most tough, the most highly trained guy, you know, in the world and very effective and a, and a great military man in every respect, but they are human and, you know, and they fail at times and they, they let their emotions overcome their good judgment at times. And again, like, like you pointed out earlier, you know, this is, these situations are not black and white. Uh, there's a lot of gray and, and when, and sometimes people react uh, maybe inappropriately. We have a couple minutes left. Is the leader of the insurgents, is that Caballo? Well, he's not. He's a senior uh, guerrilla co- uh, commander, what we, you know, uh, what would be called a comandante um, on the insurgent side. And, and these are a leftist sort of Marxist guerrilla group. Now, we, do we get um, to know him? We do get to know him quite well. He's, he's one of the principal characters. And he is a guy who has been doing this for quite a long time. And he, um, he's been fighting the government of, you know, the armed forces of San Cristobal for, you know, a long time. And, and he is now at a point where he's wondering, you know, is, are we doing the right thing here? Is this really, or should we still be fighting? Should the guerrilla force still be fighting the armed forces of San Cristobal? And it, the misery that's being inflicted on the people of the country, is it really going to improve anything? And a series of sort of bad, you know, sort of negative events occur to him uh, that really um, very much tend, make him lean over to the side that this is probably not the right thing at this point, that it's time to lay down the arms and, you know, rejoin the national process and, uh, and work together. Um, but, of course, the, the insurgent, senior insurgent leadership has, that wants nothing to do with that. And uh, so he is, a, um, he is another character who's very ambivalent, very confused at times, but extremely strong, um, you know, both physically and mentally, and extremely experienced in, in this fighting. And he's somebody who's not only revered by a lot of the insurgents, but feared by them because of his toughness and his skill in combat. And, um, and when he starts really seeing this as, you know, sort of a pointless bloodbath, um, that's, that's when things sort of really start turning bad for him. And it's, uh, I think that's one of the most exciting parts of the book is where he um, makes his final decision and how the events then conspire to, against him and how he deals with that situation. We have about 30 seconds. Uh, Charlie, uh, what would you like to say just to sum up the book? There's so much here. This is <laughs> such a uh, obviously a, a, a very profound uh, um, uh, thinking man's book. Well, I, I guess what I would say is it is it is designed to be a thinking man's book, but also designed to have and there's enough action and fast moving events in the book that it um, it should be appealing to a, a broad range of readers. And and I hope that when people read it, that they not only take away the, the main message, which I, I, I sum up nicely, I think, in the, um, in the afterward, but I, I also really hope people enjoy it. I mean, that's the main thing. I wanted people, I wanted to write a book about, sort of about my experiences. Many, many of the things that are, occur in the book actually happened. Either I saw them firsthand or, they, you know, I, I heard it from someone who saw it firsthand um, in El Salvador. And obviously not all of it, but, but, but much of it did. And um, that's what I think 
should be for people should be disturbing and and what should I would hope that anyone who reads this book would tend to understand why oftentimes these sort of violent insurgencies or violent um, you know conflicts at any level really don't necessarily approach well don't not don't necessarily but don't approach the problem from a constructive way at all and that it's it's again with a culture with a sense of the culture of a country to design a policy you're I think you're bound to be a lot more effective and and get things done a much more quickly and in a much more effective and less less violent way that's that's really what I hope people take away from it Charlie tell us how to get your book you can get it at authorhouse.com or you can get it at on Barnes and Noble uh, any of the major book suppliers it, it just you can either search on CL Levy or L Volcan uh, it's also on author tree um, there's a it's a there's a website about it where people can write in and say what they they thought of it um, and I'm going to be doing some book signings in the Norfolk area hopefully soon. And, uh, you know, it's, I'm, I'm hoping it actually ends up on the shelves. But in the meantime, the Author House um, website, or uh, like I said, any of the um, Barnes & Noble uh, books and any of those websites will have it available. Well, Charlie, we appreciate you being on Author Talk. I enjoyed it very much. I certainly appreciate the opportunity. That was C.L. Levy. He is the author of his book, El Volcan.